0: Six hundred ESPN El Paso. Ah, uh, I was bummed to hear the news about Curly Neal, one of my all-time favorite Globe Trotters. I remember the first time we went to a Globe Trotters game. It was either seventy-nine or eighty at the Special Events Center. At that time, had great seats. I think we were actually on the floor. I don't know how my uh, family pulled that one off, but we had great seats. And all I remember was before the game. Curly Neal was like trying to make a half court shot, like a behind. that was almost like like not behind his back, but it was almost like a half court hook shot. And he kept like like talking to us while he was trying to do it. It was so cool, and and I loved him. I mean, how could you not love a guy that was bald, dribbled like crazy, and you know was part of those cartoons? Remember when the Globetrotters had those cartoons in the seventies? He was part of that. Um, we brought him in for our sports expo years ago. That was even cool because we brought Curly. We thought, you know, who more iconic than Curly Neal? So he comes into town, hits on one of our employees, invites her back to his hotel room. It was great. I mean, you know, what everything you would expect from a guy that was probably then in his 60s and, and signing autographs for people. So good memories. I loved him. I miss him. And man, oh, man. Fred Curley-Neal gone at the age of 77. That's a tough way to start the show today on a Thursday, uh, Adrian. That's really difficult.
1: Yeah, it's difficult news right there. And, you know, he's just one of five players ever from the Harlem Globetrotters to have his jersey retired. So you could see the historical significance with him on the team and just sad to see his passing today.
0: Number 22, Fred Curley-Neal. So anyway, yeah, it is a sad uh, sad start uh, when you hear that kind of news uh, on Sports Talk. Anyway, um, hey, we've got uh, – this is going to be a very busy show today. We're going to jump from guest to guest to guest, and uh, it's going to be uh, a pretty uh, guest-intensive program this afternoon. So, you know, when you – talk about what we've got coming up um there are going to be we're going to discuss the baby bombers for you yankee fans next um with uh with brian hoke who's going to talk about his new book on the future dynasty of the yankees assuming they can all stay healthy which will be interesting in itself but he's going to start the program today uh we've got a busy five o'clock hour because Steve Haskins is going to join us at five. Um, Steve is coming on to talk about the relationship between his dad and Tim Floyd. So uh, Tim Floyd will be the focus of today's Don Haskins hour at six o'clock. I believe he was the first ever guest we ever had, right? We did our first show. That's correct. Is that correct?
1: First one ever on, on June 13th, 2006. How about that, Steve?
0: Uh, that's awesome. That is awesome. And, and to, uh, in case people are wondering, yes, we absolutely extended the invite. We wanted him on. We've had all of our guests coming on with us since middle of last week that are focused on the Haskins show. Tim Floyd was no exception. And, um, unfortunately, um, he just uh, had relayed the information that he will not be available. So Steve Haskins will be filling in, and uh, it'll be great to have Steve on the show and talk about the relationship between Don Haskins and Tim Floyd. So that's coming up at 5. Then, following Steve Haskins, we will have Carl Benson, the former WAC commissioner and and um, also the former commissioner from the Sun Belt, he's going to come on and talk about UTEP, you know, as a longtime member of the WAC, and then they went to Conference USA, and Carl has some pretty strong opinions about what could have happened had UTEP stayed in the WAC. And not uh, bailed out and gone to Conference USA at the time. Trust me when I tell you, folks, you're going to want to hear this conversation because, uh, as as depressing it'll as it'll be when you hear what Benson tells you, you'll understand that you know a lot of things could have been different if certain uh, moves had uh, not been made many years ago. And uh, Carl Benson, who was uh, excited when he found out that his conversation with Don Haskins was uh, last week, had reached out to us about coming on. This was before we started getting the guests on Adrian. This was the day before, because we started that on Wednesday and Carl Benson was on our Tuesday guest last week, but he's been wanting to come on ever since. So I'm excited. We get a chance to bring him on today and looking forward to, to hearing what he has to say from, uh years ago.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation too. I think there's a lot of doors that have not been closed yet as far as just closure with the WAC right now and what could have been with UTEP, you know, had they remained in in the WAC. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see what uh Benson will have to say regarding this and I know he felt very passionate about UTEP. You heard it last week when he came on the Don Haskins show and just what the Miners brought to the table for the WAC. So, it'll be great to have
0: that conversation today. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, anyway, that's going to be happening uh, on today's show. And by the way, we have uh, some incredible guests lined up on this program over the next week or so Uh, tomorrow. Luis Tiant is going to join us. And if anybody follows uh, Major League Baseball from the 70s and 80s, you know the name, Luis Tiant. He's got a book, Son of Havana. There's a lot of great uh, authors that are going to be joining us, former athletes, authors. um, Sam Smith, who wrote The Jordan Rules, he's going to be on next Monday talking about the legacy of Michael Jordan. We've got uh, Kurt Sampson on Tuesday talking about Tiger Woods' comeback. Billy Ripken, Cal's brother, is going to join us uh, next Tuesday. We've got uh, also, later in the week, Wade Phillips. That's right. Bum Phillips' son, Wesley Phillips' dad. You know Wade Phillips from all his years as Cowboys coach and defensive coordinator. He's got a book, Son of a Bum. And he's going to come on the program. I'll tell you what, I am super excited about our guest list over the next uh, week and a half or so. It's going to be spectacular, Adrian.
1: Steve, are you serious? Wade Phillips is one of my all-time favorites. I can't wait for this. Ever since I got the book yesterday, I've been reading it. I'm so excited to have him and all these great guests on the show in the coming weeks. And, hey, we're staying relevant during these times. That's a big thing right here on Sports Talk.
0: I can't believe his dad left Texas Western for a high school coaching job and got a pay increase in, like, 1963.
1: Oh, man, that's a tough one right there. I can't believe that. That's a tough one
0: to swallow. It is, but it just goes to show you that, um, you know, this job, even back in the early 60s, there were some high school jobs that paid more than uh, college jobs around the country. It's uh, it's amazing. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to having Wade Phillips on the program. That's going to be terrific. Uh, tweets coming in, 600 ESPN El Paso. This is from uh, L. Middle Fingerton. He tweets, Floyd declining the invite is just dead-ass wrong, Steve. Hey, listen, I'll say it again. All right? We extended the invite. He declined it. And whether it's right or wrong, all I can tell you is this. I've heard he's listening to the Don Haskins shows and the Don Haskins hour every day. That makes me happy. Whether he never comes on this show again, never wants to say another word to me, which is fine. As long as he is enjoying the Don Haskins hour, as much as all of you are enjoying it, I'm happy. That's all I care about. And I've already been told that he's been listening and he likes it a lot. And that's great. That is that's the point. So a, this is not about me. It's not about the show. It's about it's about coach and giving you the opportunity to hear his voice again after all these years on a regular basis. That's what we're doing. And um, I'm happy he's enjoying those shows because that's what I was uh, what I was told uh, a while back. And um, um, you know what? That's enough for me. As far as I'm concerned, and there are other guests that aren't going to be able to join us because either they're uh, they're not around anymore or their health is declining. So, you know, we've got substitutes. We are working on getting like a great substitute for every show to to come on and and, and talk uh, about the Don Haskins hour. And that's uh, definitely been a project of ours. And we're excited about that. So with everything going on and it's going to be a busy one here today, did you vote on your uh, first group of uh, UTEP matchups, the uh, four of the of the eight matchups that uh, UTEP men's basketball Twitter posted.
1: Yes, I did. I and I did a little research beforehand, so yes, I got my votes in. I, I find the votes very interesting right now, though. I
0: was shocked at one vote in particular. Okay, so the one that really floored me in a big way was the eighty five eighty six minors against the oh three oh four minors. Upset alert. I loved that 85 86 UTEP team. They went 27 and six. And again, Adrian, this is part of the issue with this kind of stuff because you said you did your homework. I don't know, from the people that voted, how, if, they, if any, they did their homework. Because if you would have looked at that 85-86 UTEP team, you would have seen the likes of Dave Fidel, Juden Smith. They were seniors that year. Quinton Gates, Mike Richmond, Jeep Jackson were juniors. Tim Hardaway was a freshman. Soup was in his sophomore year. Terry Stallworth was a freshman. I mean, they went 12 and four in the WAC, 27 and six overall in the '85-'86 season. And that year, by the way, '85-'86, uh, they had some major victories. All right, and that was they they beat number five Georgetown that season, 78-64. Then they beat Ohio State. Then they beat Alabama. Then they beat BYU in overtime. Then they beat Utah. Fans will tell you that Georgetown, Ohio State, Alabama, BYU, Utah, those five straight games, five straight wins, some of the best ever, right? Well, guess what? They are only getting... 32% 32 percent of the vote right now and the 0304 minor team with the great turnaround uh, that year, 68 percent. I thought this would be much, much closer, and in fact it's not. Yeah. That one is a landslide.
1: Steve, I'm pretty surprised on this one, too. I mean, that means about 25 out of the 38 votes so far with 16 hours left have voted for the 2003-2004 team. I just found the fact that, like you, the fact that the gap is a lot bigger than we thought is crazy right now just considering how good that 85-86 team was.
0: Like I told you, those five games, um, I was a part of that as a fan, and I think most UTEP fans in the 80s will tell you that is the greatest five-game stretch of home contests ever at UTEP. I mean, there's never been. You're not going to find a better mix of games than that. Think about it. Georgetown, Ohio State, Alabama, BYU, and Utah, and, and the Miners won all five. And how about this? The uh, Georgetown game was on the 27th. The Ohio State game was on the 28th. The Alabama game was on the 29th. BYU was on the 2nd of January. Utah was on the 4th. What a stretch that is! I mean, that's amazing. So, anyway, uh, we could talk about that uh, among other topics on today's broadcast. All right. Let's get it going. We'll talk to Charlie one next quarter pass. Then we're going to talk a little baby bombers as uh, sports talk continues. You Yankee fans will enjoy this conversation. It's coming up live here on 600 ESPN El Paso. 600 ESPN El Paso dot com. Back here on Sports Talk as uh, we continue now, 20 past the hour. Going to jump out to our 600 ESPN El Paso Village and Hotline and welcome in Brian Hoke to the program. Covers the Yankees for uh, Major League Baseball and uh, MLB.com. And uh, he's also the author of the book, The Baby Bombers, the inside story of the next Yankees dynasty. And uh, first off, um, Brian, uh, appreciate you joining us. Uh, you know i'm so curious because we get jay jaffe on uh, weekly from brooklyn talking baseball and beer with us and since uh, you probably live out in the new york area as you cover the yanks what's the uh, the scene like over there in in the city and and how the fans are, are holding up right now and how people of new york are holding up right now
2: well i'll tell you what i'm actually in tampa florida where the yankees were having spring training and uh, today would have been opening day so I'm actually still in the same apartment where uh, I was covering spring training when the game stopped a a couple weeks ago just because the situation is so tough up in New York City. I've got my family with me, so uh, we didn't really see the rush to head back up there. We we would have been in Baltimore right now. The Yankees would have probably had their opening day game in the books already, but um, uh, for the moment we're staying down here. Um, This area is also getting hit as well as our – Most areas of the country, but just uh, New York basically being the epicenter right now of this coronavirus situation, I thought we were safer here. And um, my thought is that if and when baseball does resume, and I do believe it will, um, the Yankees will be here in Tampa first rather than in New York City, just because of the way the situation is right now. So uh, we're going to stay down here and and soak up the sunshine for a little bit longer.
0: Are there some players that have also elected to stay like you in the Tampa area to uh, wait this out?
2: Yeah, a lot of the guys have scattered across the country to go back home, but there are some significant players here. Uh, Aaron Judge is here, Giancarlo Stanton, D.J. LeMahieu. Um, So there's some – A lot of the guys who are rehabbing at the complex are able to go over to George Steinbrenner Field, which they've kept open. Uh, You know, when this first all went down, the the team voted unanimously that they were going to stay here. But at that time, I think there was a thought that this could just be two weeks, and clearly it's going to be much longer than that. So a lot of the guys have decided that they can get done what they need to get done at home. Uh, head back up north, um, so they're they're kind of all over the country right now. But there are a, a pretty sizable contingent of players that are still going to Steinbrenner Field pretty da- on on a daily basis.
0: That's good. And I guess the ones that aren't going feel like they've got enough stuff uh, over in terms of training where they're at that they can kind of keep themselves in good shape uh, at uh, at home and and be ready to go when time comes.
2: Yeah, I think that's happening all around the league and, and a lot of these players do have gyms and in their homes that they can go to and they're the lucky ones if you have a batting cage or a tunnel where you can pitch. Um that, that clearly is a huge advantage and um because you're going back into your off season mode. So a lot of the things that the guys were doing to stay sharp during the off season, they're trying to go back to that. But on the other hand, I was talking to some of the younger players who were here in Tampa and they were kinda waffling on it because Uh, the gyms and the universities that they were using back in at their hometowns a lot of them live in small towns and those universities have closed up too so um some of the guys were reluctant to leave florida and i think that's why you're seeing guys stay here for example one of the players uh Tyler Wade. He's from California, and that's a state where 40 million residents have been locked down. So uh, he knows there's no reason for him to go all the way back across the country. So he's hoping to stay here in Florida as long as he can. Just one example. And um, if they do wind up closing that down, he would think about maybe Arizona or somewhere else. But the the guys are hoping to stay there in familiar surroundings.
0: As far as the season itself, I mean, we keep hearing that maybe June or even July could be a possible start date. They'll play some doubleheaders. I know Tampa, uh, Toronto's general manager suggested, uh, you know, seven inning games like we see here in the minor leagues. If you had to guess, do you figure that probably sometime uh, June or July is, is at least right now what, what kind of makes the most sense to get things started?
2: man, I would sign up for June 1 right now if you told me that that could be locked in but I think um, nobody really knows because we just have to wait and see how the next few weeks go in the U.S. I think that we are to use a baseball analogy, we're still in the very early innings of this game and this fight against the coronavirus so um, that sounds wonderful to say June 1, I think I would sign up for that Um, I would probably sign up for July 1 I think that the important thing to know here is that players because they were so close they had already ramped up physically I mean we had starting pitchers who had thrown 60 pitches and were ready for this season opener that would have been today so they've now gone back into their uh, offseason mode and so they're gonna have to build up again and have almost a second spring training or a summer training um, maybe they could get that done in two or three weeks but there's gonna have to be something where you're back in the rhythm of playing games against other teams um, you can't just throw your gloves on the field and go for it as much as we'd like to see that so, Um, I I think that probably the best analogy I can draw to it is 1995 after the strike. Um, You know, they came to a labor agreement. They had a shortened season, um, and and early in that season, starting pitchers didn't go as deep as they would today. Um, You know, actually – Teams are going to the bullpen more now anyway. So, uh, but that season, you've you got four innings out of your starter. You were happy with that. Maybe that's what we see early in the year. I, I have heard that seven-inning doubleheader thing mentioned, as we see in the minor leagues. So I think everything's on the table right now. What we need most is for this situation clear up and get those guys back on the field.
0: Brian Hokes, the author of the book The Baby Bombers: the Inside Story of the Next Yankees Dynasty. He also covers the Yanks for MLB.com as uh, he joins us live here on our Village and Hotline. You know, this book um, that really talked about the 2017 season, I guess, took uh, an all-new uh, significance this offseason once details of the sign-stealing scandal uh, went down with the Astros, especially since the Yanks took Houston to that seventh game, and that was the year of the trash can banging, and we finally Find out that everything you know went down and uh, i'm sure for you you probably would love to, to revise it with a paperback version where you could kind of include some of the new details and findings that have come out
2: man i'll tell you if i had all those details that we have now in 2017 um, i think that book would have been a much hotter seller than it was and it did okay but uh, that was such a lovable yankees team too because uh And I know that's kind of hard to say because you think of the Yankees as a big, bad monster and you either love them or you hate them. But that year, the expectations were not very high for that Yankee team. That was supposed to be a rebuilding year. They were going to give the ball to some kids and see how the Gary Sanchez, the Aaron Judge, uh, Greg Bird was the first baseman then. Um, Luis Severino was in the rotation they hadn't really made their names yet at the big league level and that season was such a fun surprise because that team was not supposed to compete and go into the postseason and they were able to make such noise and what a memorable postseason it was and as you said they ran into the Astros there but I, I think what jumps out at me when I think back about that 27 postseason is two things first of all Joe Girardi's last game as Yankees manager was at Game 7 in Houston. Now, if the Yankees win that series, uh, maybe history plays out differently. If they go into the World Series and they win it, I find it difficult to believe they would have let Girardi go, and then we don't see Aaron Boone as the manager. And the second thing is, if you go back and look, the home team won every single game in that series. So uh, Houston had the home field advantage. They won four out of the seven games. Now, <laughs> you know, you can go back and think, all right, with the trash can banging, did that help them get one extra hit, score extra one extra run? I mean, we don't really know. We'll never know for sure. Um, so I think that uh, yeah, you, you can go back and replay that forever, and I know that hurts some of the guys like Assisi Sabathia who didn't get back to a World Series, and that was probably his last best chance to get there. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for those guys to swallow, but uh, hopefully for the guys like Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez and Luis Severino, they'll have another crack coming up soon.
0: No doubt. And then two years later, they get him again in the playoffs, and this time as we, we learn more about what's going on, people are wondering, is Altuve wearing a buzzer? And it's just it's insane. And uh, I've heard the remarks from the Yankees, among other teams. That's why I kind of wonder if the delay to the season and what's going to happen till the summer is going to take all of the air out of the Astros scandal because ultimately, people are, are not concerned about that anymore. They're thinking about other things, and when the baseball's season does resume, it might not have nearly as much steam as it would have if we'd be playing today.
2: Yeah, I was saying that to one of my buddies the other day. I said, you guys remember when the biggest story in sports was some guys used to bang on trash cans? I, I wish we could go back to those simple days. Um, I think you're right in that what the Astros did won't be forgotten. And I think that you will hear some negative reaction around the league for them. But I think that the vitriol will not be there the way it would have been because it was pretty nasty, even down here in spring training. And you're talking about spring trainings is happy, fun time where the games don't really matter. And everybody's just out getting a tan. And uh, most of the crowd is over the age of 60. And um, they were getting some pretty loud, nasty reactions wherever they went in spring training. And I thought they were in for a miserable year. I was saying that uh it was going to be probably the least fun 95-100 to 100 win team in baseball history, and, and so who knows what it's going to be for the Astros, but I think you're right in that um, it, it, this current situation puts everything a little more in perspective, and I don't think what the Astros did will be forgotten. Um, I, I think that baseball fans will eventually get back to – Hating the Astros if that was where they were inclined to go, but uh, I, I think the first thing is we all just want to see this great game get back on the field and for life get a little bit back, more back to normal.
0: More with uh, Brian as we continue, but first, bottom of the hour, let's go to Adrian. He has a Sports Center update for us as sports talk continues. Six hundred ESPN El Paso.com. Good stuff, Adrian. Appreciate that as we continue here on Sports Talk. So it was a little uh, more than uh, two years ago when Brian Hoke uh, released the book, The Baby Bombers, the inside story of the next Yankees dynasty, talking about that memorable 2017 season. Since then, uh, the Yankees have been good. It's just the the dynasty part hasn't happened yet. So, Brian, I'll ask you, especially now knowing Luis Severino is going to have had Tommy John surgery, and he's on his road to recovery, and we've seen... Injuries, batter guys like Stanton and Judge, and and Sanchez has has not reached that level. And Greg Bird is now playing for the Rangers. Do you still see this young nucleus of Yankees as a potential dynasty?
2: Well, let me preface it by saying, you know how newspaper writers say, "Don't yell at me, I didn't write the headline. I did not write that tagline for the book, and I knew that could create a problem someday." <laughs> but um, I, I do believe that, look, the Yankees are built. They're a championship-caliber team. That's the you, the phrase that Hal Steinbrenner always continues to, to use. And I think that um, what that book intended to do was uh, display the shift from how it became Derek Jeter's Yankees to Aaron Judge's Yankees. And I think that the front office made a lot of smart moves in a short period of time to kind of remake what was becoming a stale, aging team, and they got rid of guys like, Carlos Beltran and and move those guys out. They had to say goodbye to Mark Teixeira and uh, the retirement of Jeter and kind of shifting into this newer phase where they were relying on this young talent. And so you've got guys that they are continuing to build upon, like Gary Sanchez, like Aaron Judge in right field. Uh, Didi Gregorius was a terrific shortstop for them. That was a really smart move. Uh, Now they've let him go to Philadelphia, but Glaber Torres came to the Yankees in a very smart trade, and he's a guy who's... 22 years old, and he's somebody you can build on. Already had two terrific major league seasons. I think there's more in the tank there. Uh, they've made some smart trades. For example, uh, the trade for Luke Voigt, um, you got a starting first baseman out of nowhere. And so while some of these players that we featured in the book, say Greg Bird, did not work out, Brian Cashman and his uh, front office staff have done a really good job of um, finding value where other teams aren't seeing it. Gio Urshela, for example. Um, nobody really knew much about him when he came to the Yankees. He, they got him for the price of a Hyundai Santa Fe. They got him for $25,000, and he developed into a starting third baseman for them. So I, I think that you have to have a little bit of that, and what always helps the Yankees is they've got their financial might as an advantage. You know, if if the Steinbrenners want to break out the wallet and use that checkbook as a force, as they did this past offseason in signing Garrett Cole for over $300 million, you can do that. And why they did that was Cole was supposed to be the icing on top of the cake of this team that was already tailor-made to, to win a championship, uh, they believed, in 2018-2019. And, um, you know, having seen them on the field this year, I, I was buying into the hype down here. They looked pretty good. I thought that, um, you know, nothing was going to be handed to them. They had a tough division race. Probably Tampa Bay would have been their – Biggest challenger, but this was a team that was uh, constructed to make noise in October, and I believe, uh, you know, even if we're looking at a shortened season, they they definitely will still be a force.
0: How do you like Aaron Boone as manager, Brian?
2: I, I think he's, he's been the right fit. Um, you know, I, I, what they wanted coming off of Joe Girardi, who was more stern, I think. You know, it's funny, somebody described it to me this way Joe Torrey was kind of the laid back, detached dad in the room, and uh, Girardi was kind of the intense, kind of a very stern dad, the one who would yell at you if you got home at nine oh one instead of nine o'clock if your curfew was there. Boone's more like a cool uncle in the room. That's how I would describe it, and he can connect with the players a little bit better. He listens to the same music, he watches the t- same TV shows. I, I don't think that that has to be um, a prerequisite for managing the New York Yankees, but I think that the fact that He's got some broadcast background. He was on TV. He had the big home run in 2003. I was actually just watching. We have an opening day at home here uh, with MLB, and so the the game that they were broadcasting live and live-tweeting along with was uh, the Aaron Boone game in the 2003 ALCS. So That was kind of cool to watch all all 11 innings of that. Um, I think he's he's definitely done a good job, um, considering he had no prior coaching or managing experience, and that's crazy to think. You know, 20 years ago, you never could have just walked in and managed the Yankees off the street. But uh, now the way that the game works and how uh, front offices are kind of constructed, your job is to almost be a middle manager and a uh, press press secretary. And I think Boone's done a really good job of that. And it doesn't hurt. He's the first manager in uh, Major League history to win 100 or more games in each of his first two seasons. So I think he's got some job security locked up
0: now. No doubt about it. Folks, you can uh, follow Brian on Twitter, at uh, Brian Hoke on uh, Twitter. You can also visit his website, which is uh, Brian, and then there's a, uh, a dash or a hyphen, uh, Hoke.com. It's got information not only on uh, Baby Bombers, which you can still get on Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble, but you can also check out a book he co-wrote with uh, Mark Feinsand called Mission 27. So, a lot of good Yankee material. If you like the new Yanks, you'll definitely want to check this out, and, and Brian's got to some great work up uh, on his site uh, as well as uh, online. And uh, hey, enjoyed the time. It was a lot of fun having you on the program, and we appreciate uh, not just uh, talking about uh, these Yankees, but also uh, giving us the latest on uh, what you're hearing around the ball club.
2: Absolutely. Stay safe down there, guys.
0: You too. From Brian Hoka over to ABC 7 News. That's coming up next with Eric Elkin. Then a conversation between Adrian and Jason Fitz. Our weekly talk from First Take Your Take. That's coming up. Jason Fitz. Adrian brought us next right here. Sports Talk continues. 600 ESPN El Paso. 600 ESPN El Paso. From our 600 ES Piano Paso Lubingo studios, Steve Kaplowitz broadcasting from home. Adrian brought us in our control room right now. For those of you that were around at 9.20 this morning, I know a lot of people out there felt the El Paso earthquake or the quake here in El Paso. The epicenter wasn't here. Um, but nonetheless, uh, 4.7 is what I heard, or 4.2, one or the other. Was it 4.7, Adrian? I think that was what I heard for the magnitude of the earthquake.
1: Yeah, I've heard a bunch of different things. I even saw five, but I think 4.7 is probably the it's probably the most accurate right there. Now,
0: I felt nothing, by the way. I was on a uh, video call with our sales team. I was outside, and I can honestly tell you the ground didn't shake. Nothing happened. In fact, when, when I kept hearing there was an earthquake, I thought it was a joke at first, but uh, then I found out a lot of El Pasoans did, in fact, feel it. Adrian, you said you felt it at your apartment.
1: Yeah, Steve, I did actually. I felt like this little shake, and I was like, what is going on right now? And then, yeah, I guess everybody posted on social media that it was some
0: form of an earth- earthquake. Unbelievable. Let me find out if uh, Steve Haskins uh, felt the earthquake uh, this morning at his house, because he joins us live right now in our 600 ES Piano Paso Village in hotline as we get ready for another Don Haskins hour with uh, guest Tim Floyd. Uh, Steve, it's good to have you back on the program. And, and did you feel the earthquake today?
3: Um, I, I can honestly say I didn't, Steve, but my son Cameron did. He told me that he felt something, and and I'd heard something that was, uh, you know, just up up north or or closer towards Odessa or 200 miles from here, but there was actually one here, and and, and there was an actual earthquake here. Is that what you're saying? I know it. Well, well they
0: uh, well there wasn't well, the earthquake was felt in El Paso. There were yeah, okay. a lot of El Pasoans that said that the uh, the ground was shaking. Some said that the um that their lights started moving and you know uh, swimming pools were were rumbling a little bit. Um I don't know. But, but yeah. does Cameron live with you or is yes, he in his he own place? So, he, uh, so
3: yes, so he felt so it in his room.
0: So he felt it in his room, but you didn't feel it. That's why. I guess
3: I was uh, I wasn't I guess I I, I thought it was uh, uh I I don't know. I didn't if I if there was something I felt I, I, I would I wouldn't uh, you know well, I just I wasn't aware fun. of it. I'm just like you, Steve. I'm not far from where you live, right? You're and you uh and you didn't feel it, right?
0: I didn't, and then I then I talked to my neighbor across the street. He didn't feel it. I talked to Tim Haggerty, who lives a block and a half away. He didn't feel it. So I don't know. Maybe we were part of that that small group of Westsiders that uh, that didn't get any impact at all today. Who knows? Yeah,
3: <laughs> right. I'm, you know, I'm, that, that that is uh, that is weird. That you think all the things everybody else has to deal with. It's like, well, we don't have earthquakes or or basically yep. tornadoes. But I guess maybe we maybe we're we're uh, We're going to start having those, too.
0: (laughs) It's... It's incredible. Now, before yeah, really I get is. to um, before I get to the relationship between your dad and uh, Tim Floyd, um, yesterday the news came out: uh, Anthony Tark has gone into the transfer portal. He's the third. Um, I know a lot of our listeners probably realize this. They would think, but you still follow Utah minor basketball as much as ever, and uh, it's it's a topic you love to talk about. And I know it's tough sometimes when you hear these guys going in the transfer portal because you just. See to yourself, um, you know. Hopefully, that's that's the last person because you don't want the miners to to try to lose anybody else off this roster right now.
3: Well, I, I you know, I saw an, an article uh, the coach for Wichita State just saying that he was that he just needed. I guess I needed to adapt. I need to adapt to this. And I, I, I talked to Tim Floyd about this because he's he told he, that he talked to to, uh, uh, to the guy to the coach. Uh, Tom, is it? Uh, I can't remember his name. Are you Talking uh, about uh, Greg Marshall. Greg Marshall.
0: Greg, Greg Marshall? Marshall.
3: Yes, and that he says like you stick to your guns and you just gotta, um, you, you know, con- continue on and 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 trying to adapt. And I think even Tim said he'd probably, uh, uh, and, it, it, you know, some of this you'd, you're just gonna have to accept and and also re-, re you know rethink bringing freshmen in because if you bring a freshman in you you know somebody you're gonna have them for first two years and then somebody else is gonna have them for his. Third and fourth year, and they're going to be a lot more prepared. And uh, but this thing, like the Big Ten, we were talking about Steve the other day, the that uh, players that the uh, and this came from basically I real found this out was that all the sports, golf, uh, baseball, uh, soccer, volleyball, that they could all transfer, uh, you know, on a dime. And so instead of saying let's not let that let's not allow that to happen anymore, they said okay, well. Football and basketball can do it too. So, and I, I saw Calipari an article. Calipari said, uh, "If and, and I think he, I, apparently he got this from Tim. He says, Yeah hey, you can start re- recruiting just when you're shaking hands with guys after the game. Just don't get on the bus. Just stay here.' It's Absolutely. insane. It's insane what they're what it's like. And then to see the athletic directors make it make it worse with uh, with some of these decisions they're making." I would do like New Mexico State. I think that they've got they figured it out way back when, and I would I would probably follow their model, especially if you're a mid-level school. Even they're saying even the big schools, it's it's uh, you know they're they're seeing it.
0: Unreal. Steve Haskins yep. with us right now on our Village Inn Hotline as we continue here on Sports Talk. So, how would you best describe the relationship between your dad and Tim Floyd?
3: I'd say it was like father-son, pretty much. I mean, he was, my dad, you know, when he uh, uh, got that letter, you know, from Tim, and he about to throw it away because it was so illegible. I mean, he couldn't, you know, but he saw Lee Floyd in there, and he saw, and he was like, you know, and he recognized that name, and he um, he just, uh, my dad thought the world of Tim and uh, and knew how responsible he was for what happened you know the 80s. Those I was just watching the Arizona game the other day. The, the and I was like, that's the team that you know that they built, that Tim built, and, and you know through his. Uh, just he, he, you know, my, I remember my dad saying that you know he just stay in airports because he didn't have any you know any other money, but he was just relentless, and he brought him players that. Uh, I heard on your show yesterday him say that I felt he felt like he kind of undercoached a little bit, <laughs> and I, I thought that was you know that's pretty good that that uh, he we did we had the kind of talent like the eighty seven team I looked at that one and I thought wow that that team could have easily gone to the final four just a as, you know, beat
0: as you know yeah go ahead
3: no that uh, um but uh, anyways my his relationship with Tim was just as as you know like I said, I think <laughs> like a brother you know tim's always seemed like a brother and my my dad was just they, they just had the best relationship a, a, a coach and an ex-assistant could ever have
0: i know they also talked almost every day um even after uh even after coach retired and was was driving around the truck a lot he would he would talk to uh, to coach floyd all the time
3: he talked it all the time and then in fact was a you know, a consultant. Basically, he, Tim kind of hired him. At, you know, with the Bulls when, and he, you know, and he, he, told you know, went on the road with them for like three or four games and realized how how, how great the pros had it. You know, he never saw his bag. He said he'd get to the hotel room and his bag was in there. And he said one night on the plane, they were, they said, told the guys there's no porterhouse steaks. And I said, well, it's <laughs> like really they were all. So he said it was unbelievable. But he also realized how hard. Pro players really played. Everybody thinks that they slacked around. That they were they played pretty hard. But uh, but Tim Tim was always uh, you know they they talked all the time. And same with Billy Gillespie, Billy Gillespie and Doc. You know guys that wanted they wanted you know to talk every every day if they could. And and uh, my dad and Tim, you know, uh, um, were were that way throughout tim's career he wanted to know how how things were going and and uh and just you know it was i think it's probably that way for you know some coaches and their assistants but i think it was really special for them
0: and there was only about four and a half years separating the two of you so as he got close uh to your dad did you almost feel like uh, for you also uh tim became family
3: yeah absolutely and he was he was tim was uh you know, we were talking about salaries, how bad they were back. Uh, I said, I think that he was making this much, and Tim said, That's right, because I was making this much. And uh, but they were, but he, he, I was just, you know, looking back on it, how they, how they were managed, uh, to, you know, a team that, like I said, the teams that they built were, were, uh, it was just the way you, you, you know, you we we always wanted it to be, you know, you build a team up from a freshman on up, but, uh, but, but Tim. Tim was just. Uh, uh, he, I, I think my dad probably had to pinch himself a few times. Like, how do you get a you get a graduate assistant that develops into this? So it was truly a, a wreck. <laughs> yeah, but he had a you know he had the pedigree obviously from his father and and being uh, 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 you know having connections here so to speak because I didn't realize that that uh, I think his grandfather was. I uh, uh, heard that I think we were at a banquet ten years ago that his grandfather was. Uh, uh, head of the Sunbulk, uh, you know for a short period of time, and then he passed away oh, wow. um, yeah, it was back in you know way back when obviously and and uh, but uh, tim floyd 's grandfather was actually in that position so but uh yeah Tim and beverly and and shannon and you know the they're uh, just they they're they're family to us they really are.
0: As tough as it was for him not getting a chance to turn the program around the way he wanted to when he came back in 2010 and took the job, it, it hit you just as hard because I know that uh, although uh, a Coach wasn't uh, around at that time, still he mentioned uh, he mentioned your mom, uh, Mary. He mentioned you and and really the family as being one of the biggest reasons why he wanted to come back and and, and take the job.
3: Well, it's it, that you just think about it how how. What kind of person, you know, what, who takes a fourth of, of a salary? And granted, they paid, you know, paid them pretty, paid them pretty good here, but it was a fourth of what he could make on the open market. And it's like, who would do that? It's like the only one I could think of was my my dad. So they were, you know, two, you know, two of a kind. That their loyalty, you know, is something that's, you know, we we don't see as a, 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 enough of that, you know, nowadays. It's the the Almighty Dollar, and and you after a while you can't blame people, but but for Tim to come back and I always just said he he had the he had the worst luck. We we've talked about this, Steve. The, the the worst luck I've ever seen. I know my dad had some you know some bad luck here and there, but I was it was just remarkable. If it was not a you know somebody a uh, school interfering like with Hamilton, I think it probably happened, and and uh or or, or some uh, or a kid turning pro when they they brought in. Fifteen general managers to talk on the phone and I had it on speakerphone and tell them you're not ready, you're not ready, and two days later it turns pro. Or you get, yeah. you get some guys, you know, gambling in the dorm, and that was, you know, the bad thing. But, man, Mackenzie Moore was an, you know, was an NBA player at least for a couple of years. And then the, to finish it off with, with his, his last year, I said, well, guess what, you're going to lose three seven-footers in a month. You know, think about that. That's a, that's a hard. That's some hard stuff. And he still, I think in those those years, I looked back at the Things happened, and all of a sudden they won ten in a row. They played tough. and They played hard. But you, but but I think Tim would probably uh, tell you that that his. It, uh, it, Along the way, that he probably should have adjusted because I asked him, I said, What, well, you know, junior? Well, I'm going to have four freshmen and four sophomores, and, and he had a model set from, you know, when he was here in the 80s and maybe USC and all the other places he had been. That that whole thing just, you know, as soon as we saw this, this craziness with transfers, I think, you know, even what, eight or nine years ago, it was, you know, four, four or five hundred. Now, I think it was last year, what was it, twelve hundred? I mean, think about that. That's like two hundred and twenty starting fives just moving to, to another to another team, or you know, it, uh, just remarkable how, how this is work. How, how the I think it's horrible for for uh, for the game for for, the, for sports, and I, I don't know. It sounds like they're trying to make it worse.
0: Yeah, it does. Before yeah. it gets better, that's for yeah. sure. So. <laughs> hey um I'll say this I, um, I'm happy he's getting a chance to listen to the old shows that's what it's yes. all about you know so many people are enjoying them and and really that's why we did it because we want to bring your dad's his memory back and 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 give people an opportunity to put a smile on their face again right now which uh, I'm happy it's getting a chance to do
3: oh it's, I think it's and and by the way Steve the, you know the you're you know getting to listen to the shows and and the what an excellent format you have you know with the the, with the way that 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 was it was a it's a fun show to listen to i mean obviously i want to listen to my dad I mean, that's incredible the, the the you know the how how clear it is how it's like it seems like it's just live really i mean when i listen to it it's amazing the quality and uh and, and it's just it's it's just it's fun and and uh, i think i think anybody that uh and it is a tough time right now but uh uh, it's it's really fun to listen to, and I think you had a great format that that, that was fun to listen to, you know, we, with the people calling in and, and uh, you know how the how you meshed it all together and 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 brought in you know great uh... uh folks to you know as guests, and and uh, I just it, it was really I know it was only a what is it two and a half year run, but yeah. it was that was an excellent show. I mean, you, you, when you pull things back from something that's happened and you get to listen to it again. Realized what what a great show that was.
0: Well, your dad was amazing, and, and you know that and how, how I feel about him and, and you guys and the whole family. So it's just so much fun that we get a chance to, to play these all over again and give people the chance that maybe never heard it before to hear it for the first time. And those that do remember it uh, get a chance to, to relive some of these shows. I, I've got right. one question for you on Twitter. This came a little while ago from uh, Miner. He wants to know, uh, Steve, being an NMSU grad, um, you had a very unique perspective perspective on the UTEP-NMSU rivalry. Can you tell us a little bit what that was like for you from both the days when you were in school and now?
3: Well, I was, uh, I was inducted in the New Mexico State Athletic Hall of Fame last year, so I told them when I got up there, I said, it's like two worlds colliding. But when, when I was at New Mexico State, I uh, one of the stories I told was my dad giving me a ride on a Sunday evening, and not much not not much was said. And uh, I think I probably had a lot of fun that weekend, and so it was quiet. and And I got we got to the to, to in front of my dorm, and he hadn't really said much. He looked over at me, and he says. Don't tell anybody I was on this campus. <laughs> and I said, okay, <laughs> <laughs> and so and that was like he it didn't. It, I thought he was kind of kidding, but it looked pretty kind of serious. But anyways, it was it, it was. Uh, it, I definitely uh, uh, when I was up there, I, I had to kind of bite my tongue a few times. Or, or but uh, I I always yeah I, I really always enjoyed New Mexico State. I think it's a wonderful school. But uh, there was uh, there was. Uh, it was definitely it was still a hated rivalry and it, it's, but like i said being in the uh uh going up there and being inducted to the hall of fame i i, I felt like i uh, uh you know i was like dad i hope you're okay with this <laughs> but he did he always he, he always had respect for the for the aggies and the and their uh, their program and i think you know herb Wimberly, my coach he always said that's the i like you know herbs the Herb's the, the nicest guy at New Mexico State, and he's the one I I probably like the most. <laughs> but it was uh, it it was sometimes it was uh, um, you know a, a little awkward. You know, oh, I guess another story about two years after I left, the uh, I had the you know the Sahara shirts that last forever. And It was in New Mexico State, and he was getting after me at the golf course. He's telling me something, and you know, chewing me out. And then he looked up and he says. And stop wearing those damn Aggie shirts. So that's my <laughs> that's my cake. Like that, so you tell that's, uh, that's what that's what that good. relationship was like, at least at that time. I so oh, I didn't realize it bothered you so much, Dad. I, I didn't it. even think of it. But.
0: Good stuff. Hey, Steve, yeah. listen, I appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing uh, some of your memories on Tim and, and your dad, and and uh, it's going to be a great hour coming up at six o'clock uh, when we get a chance to to relive the first ever Don Haskins show with uh, Tim as the special guest.
3: Oh. It's that's great. And, and Steve, I, like I said, I, I think people realize, you know, what a, what a great show you put together. You know, you still got to have somebody do it what, like you did it. And it was absolutely uh, a, a, a great show. And you really, uh, like I said, it was professionally done and, and really top of the line.
0: I appreciate that. Thanks again for the time, Steve. Steve. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Steve Haskins, folks, joining us here on Sports Talk. Coming up next, Carl Benson, the former WAC and Sunbelt Commissioner. He'll join us live right after Charlie Wan, who's got this traffic update. 600 com. Twenty-five past the hour as we continue on sports talk. The guests keep on coming today and the Village and Hotline's gonna remain busy. Um last Tuesday we had a chance to play one of our first Don Haskins hour replays with Carl Benson. Commissioner, former commissioner of uh, the uh, WAC, the Sun Belt, the Mid American Conference. He's now retired and happily living in the Denver area. And he joins us uh, live on the show as we continue our conversation. And uh, I love the fact that we ended up going and transitioning from Steve Haskins to you, Carl. It's a it's a perfect transition here in our five o'clock hour. Well, it's a
4: uh, it's a privilege to be. Uh, be uh... Linked to the Haskins family, that's for sure. And I really did enjoy listening to Coach Haskins' interview with me from uh, 2005, I believe it was, or 2000, maybe 2004 or 5. But uh, uh, really enjoyed it, and I really appreciated his kind words. And and I especially, you know, appreciated his comment that uh, you know he felt that you know, that UTEP uh, should have never left the WAC. And so that uh, that certainly made made me feel good uh, last Tuesday night.
0: Now, take us back in time. You joined the WAC as commissioner in 94. You were the Mid-American Conference Commissioner for the previous uh, four or five years. And you held that title with the WAC until uh, 2012. And and going through the timeline, UTEP was in the WAC beginning in 1968. But then in 2005, they left uh, to uh, Conference USA, along with a host of uh, other schools, and uh, chose not to stay in. The WAC, but there's a lot more to this story than I think a lot of people realize. Correct?
4: Well, I think that uh, you know the the evolution of the WAC once it went to 16 teams, uh, and then and the creation of the Mountain West. Uh, I think that there was was a question at that time, um, you know, why UTEP didn't make the cut uh, when the Mountain West was created. Uh, you know, when the eight schools. Um, you know, left and they added you know Colorado State, Wyoming, BYU, Utah, UNLV and San Diego State that you know from a seniority standpoint UTEP had just as much seniority uh, as Colorado State uh you know the 1968 and uh, you know there was always questions about why why didn't UTEP make the cut uh, that first time around and you know, there's a lot of I'm sure uh, Rumors and and opinions as to why it didn't happen, but but then kind of fast forward a little bit, a few more years, as I was trying to rebuild the the WAC, and and we added some some really fine schools in in University of Nevada and, and Boise State, uh, and we had a we had a pretty pretty good uh, pretty good uh, you know league there. It was a ten team league, uh, but it stretched from you know what? From Tulsa to Hawaii, and and that you know without divisions. And Steve, in 2001, I recommended you know to the to the existing 10 universities, including UTEP, uh, that we add Utah State, New Mexico State, to get to 12 teams, so that the WAC could um, could be divided into into divisions with a uh, an eastern division that would have consisted of SMU, Rice, Tulsa. You know, UTEP, Louisiana Tech, and New Mexico State, uh, and the Western Division. The other, the other six: uh, Fresno State, Nevada, Boise State, San Jose State, Hawaii, and and Utah State. Which would have significantly reduced travel. Would have saved uh, a lot of money for schools in terms of travel expenses. And um, it was uh, it was voted down, uh, and there was opposition to the adding. Utah State and, and New Mexico State to to get the twelve teams, and and again a lot of a lot of opinions as to as to how and why. You know, one of the things that that I experienced in my eighteen years at the WAC, and and then I even experienced in the Sun Belt, was that you know if, if there's a couple of presidents who, who don't support the membership of a particular school, uh, you know, they're never going to get in, and. You know, Utah, Utah opposed Utah State for for years and years and years, and Utah State never got into the WAC. Uh, I think we know that, that UTEP opposed New Mexico State for years and years and years, and until UTEP left uh, the WAC to go to Conference USA, you know, did, uh, did New Mexico State finally you know, finally come into the uh, into the WAC? So you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of membership changes that happened during that. Uh, 1998 to you know, 2005, and many even go fast forward another time. Steve, that, you know when the when the Mountain West lost Utah and BYU, and they wanted to you know to get to 12 teams. You know they, they add you know Fresno State and Nevada. When you look at the at the Mountain West footprint, you know there isn't any question that you know that, that UTEP. Was in that footprint, and 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 yet they they didn't get the didn't get the call, and and it even goes further when Utah State and um, San Jose State and Hawaii are added to the Mountain West, and UTEP gets left out again. So it's been a it's been an interesting uh, and very political. College presidents are very very political. And they make decisions that they believe are in the best interest of their school, sometimes over what may be in the best interest of the country.
0: Former WAC, Sun Belt uh, Mid-American Conference Commissioner uh, Carl Benson uh, with us uh, here on Sports Talk. Carl now retired, but he was a focused uh, guest from the—it was 2007, actually, Carl. We played. It was March of 07, and that was when the WAC tournament was at the uh, Pan Am Center in Las Cruces. And we had you on the Don Haskins Show uh, last week, and, and now we've got you back live this week. So, first off, um, as we continue our conversation from what you just talked about, I mean— I've heard for years that UTEP never wanted New Mexico in the same conference. Was it more about uh you think just I mean, I've never understood reasons for that and you mentioned Utah and Utah State had the same feeling. Is it just that the they I mean, I, they they played each other as a regular rival, anyway, so why not add him in as a geographic rival? Did you ever get any more any more into the discussion of why uh, UTEP really never wanted New Mexico State involved in the same conference?
4: Well, I think I can I can answer it without using a specific. Because I I've thought so many times that uh, when when two universities are are in the same region and and they are not in the same conference and one. One university can claim that they're in a superior conference to that that other university, and again, you know, forget about New Mexico State. You know, I think there was some of that same, um, you know, New Mexico UTEP. You know, what kept UTEP out of the Mountain West at the very beginning mm-hmm. may have been that New Mexico didn't want to share, you know, the the Mountain West with with the UTEP. Um, but uh, I mean, the 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 issue of of regional superiority. Uh, then you can always throw in, you know, academic uh, superiority. That one university may think that they have greater academic uh, characteristics than, than another university, and and by not affiliating with that particular university, it allows one university to to claim. Superiority, uh, and again, that's that's not that has happened in many, many, many conferences over the course of time. Not just in the Mountain West or the WAC or uh, in Virginia Tech and Virginia. The University of Virginia kept Virginia Tech out of the Atlantic Coast Conference for several years until it took you know, the governor of Virginia to mandate that those schools be in the same conference. Uh, UNLV and, and and Nevada, you know, didn't want to be in the same conference until, you know, until there was no choice. And and sometimes that's what that's what happens. How a school ends up being in the same conference is that there's there's absolutely no other choices. And and a university president can only kind of use the you know the you know, the, the void card uh, so many times until. You know, until it
2: can't be used any longer.
0: Do you believe that if UTEP had stuck around in the WAC and not left in 05, they would have eventually gotten into the Mountain West? Or, like you said, if New Mexico didn't want them in from the very beginning, would they have figured out a way to try to keep them out even if the miners had stayed in the WAC and were the logical replacements to go into the conference? You
4: no, know, I, I really believe that if, if we'd been able to, if UTEP had stayed in 2005 and and been able to take advantage of really of of a, of a WAC that, that had some great success between 2005 and 2010. Boise State's you know Fiesta Bowl win and and uh, you know coupled by Hawaii's you know uh, entrance into the BCS and then 2010 Boise State plays again in in the Fiesta Bowl. You know, had, had UTEP been a member of the WAC at that time, there would have been some pretty significant financial. Rewards for for UTEP, but but again, as the Mountain West, um, you know, ended up having to go down into the into the WAC to backfill BYU and Utah, and then to, to get to 12 teams so they could have that championship game. And and as I said earlier, you know, the, the teams that they took from the from the WAC, if UTEP had been in the WAC at that time. Uh, you know the Mountain West ended up in in 2005. You know taking, um, you know the, or excuse me, in 2010 taking Fresno State and Nevada, followed by Utah State and, and with all due respect, you know San Jose State, which, um, you know, could question you know who's the most valuable. I, I said for many many times after I left, uh, even this even the whack to go to the Sun Belt. I always thought that UTEP had value to the Mountain West as a as a university that that delivered its fan base and delivered its population. San Jose State doesn't deliver, you know, San Jose. San Diego State didn't deliver San Diego. Um, UNLV really didn't deliver, you know, Las Vegas. But, but UTEP delivered you know, a major, you know, a top market, and they are also one of the few universities, you know, not just in the West, but that at one-time averaged ten thousand in basketball, and you know could average thirty thousand in football. And there's you know, there's never been, you know, there's there's just a handful of those of schools in the West or in the Mountain West that could ever do that. So I thought that UTEP always had, you know, had great value, and and I, I'm shocked that today here in 2020, 10 years after you know, the Mountain West with the 12 teams, you know, that UTEP is still, uh, you know, on, a, on an island, uh, you know, in El Paso, Texas, in Northwest Texas, uh, you know, in, in Conference USA. It just it doesn't make any sense.
0: And they haven't been able to be successful enough to position themselves out. That's what's even harder to, to fathom right now. You know, football is 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 averaging about as, as few fans as we've seen in a long time. Basketball's also hit the bottom. It's been a rough, rough go for the miners. And, you know, in order for them to start having value again, they've got to win and pack fans in the house. And, unfortunately, that just hasn't been the case uh, in, in, in the last few years.
4: Well, you know, once you lose... Once you lose a fan base, and once you lose the, you know the, the win loss column, you know it's really hard to you know, to get back. Uh, the what comes first, the win loss column or the attendance? And you know, I think that we all know that it's the win loss column. And mm-hmm. until until that can turn around, uh, you know, the attendance is going to suffer.
0: You're nine months into retirement give me as we wrap this up your uh, best guess as to what you think the future of uh, you know mid major college athletics is going to be like
4: well let's let's focus rather than mid major let's focus on the group of five conferences the, the sure. mountain West the conference USA the Sun Belt the mid American conference and the American conference and those five conferences have been grouped together, and you know, the American is claiming that you know, that they are the Power Six conference that belongs, you know, with the Power Five. You know, the line The line that separates the Group of Five and the Power Five. Uh, you know, there's, there's there'll be new negotiations, renegotiations of the CFP. Um, probably in three years, there's five years left on the contract. You know, what happens the next time that that, that is negotiated? And what happens to the, to the group of five conferences? And, and now in light of you know, the financial impact that, that the you know, coronavirus has had and will have on intercollegiate athletics, um, you know, the Power Five conferences have been giving the group of five conferences nearly $100 million a year. To be part of the, the CFP, and in ESPN or any other television network, you know is going to pay the CFP X number, regardless of whether the, the group of five is, is in uh, in that uh, uh, you know equation. So I, I I'm fearful that that the group of five is is in jeopardy of of continuing to receive that type of financial, that doesn't make any you know any difference whether UTEP is in Coverage USA or whether UTEP is you know ends up in the Mountain West somewhere down the road. I, I think that there's a there's a, a fear that you know, that there will be a change in you know in how the Power Five you know, manages their event, and again, it's their event. CFT is their event. And the group of five has been included, you know, as a it was a you know, and it's not it's no longer a token; because it's significant money. I mean, it's a hundred million dollars. The old BCS you know, was about $25 dollars. So, the last five or six years of the last six years of the CFP has been a significant uh, financial reward for. For the Coverage USA and the Mountain West and the MAC and the Sun Belt and the American.
0: Tell you what, doesn't sound too uh, too promising, but hey, we'll we'll see how how things uh, shake out and, and hopefully things here get better before they get worse, especially with the coronavirus and what we've got right now with sports on hold. But uh, hey, it's been a great conversation. Carl, now that I know you're retired, you got all the time in the world. Let's get a chance to do this again and have you back on the program. How's that?
4: More more than happy to uh, you know, I've always been said I've been, I'm the historian of uh, the last thirty years of you know, college football, and I've been around the table you
3: know,
0: three different
4: conferences, and I've seen all the all the moves and all the changes. I've you know, UTEP is one of uh, I think it's uh, fifty three different universities that I've presided over. Um, President Natalicio... It's one of seventy-four presidents, you know, that I worked for. So I've, uh, I've got, I've got some history behind me. That's for sure, Steve. And, and now it's, you know, looking back and reflecting on it. I, I don't know if I'm going to write a book or not, but uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of content. I just don't know if there's a lot of readership. So.
0: Oh, there will be. If it's, let me tell you something. If you don't hold back and it's a tell-all book, you'll have, uh, you'll have a real good bestseller on your hands, Carl. I promise you that.
4: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll have to have you with my agency. So.
0: Fair enough. I'll, 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 I'll help you write okay. it. How, how about that? That sounds like a plan. Okay. All right, listen, That's great stuff. Thing. Appreciate the time, and we'll talk soon. You Carl guys, Benson, former, soon. you bet, commissioner of uh, the WAC, the Sun Belt, and the American joining us here on Sports Talk. We'll come back, wrap it up next on our final countdown. Keep it, things moving. Don Haskins hour, 15 minutes away, right here on 600 TSP El Paso. 600 espn dot com